growing in faith and, and we're, we're, we're learning to trust in faith and, and I'm believing and I'm declaring for us that 21 is gonna be the year of the comeback. I'm declaring that for you, if you will look to Jesus, where we talked about last week, our theme first for the year, we're gonna look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, that if you will look to Jesus this year more than you have any other year, then you will experience a comeback in 2021. I grew up in Arkansas. Uh, I like to talk about that from time to time because I get reminded that I sound funny from time to time. I just feel like appropriate context to why I say some of the things that I do. Uh, sometimes I say things and they're Arkansas-er. My, my family calls them, uh, my father-in-law calls them Arkansas-er uh, sayings. Uh, but I, I've learned that there are times where I say things that, that people in Kansas City don't recognize. Um, and and I'm going to tell you one of those sayings today, and maybe this is one of those sayings. Maybe you've heard this before, but in the South, it's not uncommon when you're at dinner and you finish your dinner and they're cleaning up the plates. It's not uncommon for someone to say, hold on to your fork because the best is yet to come. And what that means for everybody that has a sweet tooth, any sweet tooth people in the house? Oh, bless the Lord. Come on. I believe, I believe that, that food in heaven is going to consist of apple fritters. And raspberry Bismarcks and the demonic spirit of carbs and, and fat is just going to be removed from it. That's what I'm believing. And you don't know it's not true. So I'm going to continue to believe that. Uh, but I have a huge sweet tooth. And uh, man, I still love hearing that as a kid. I, shoot, I still love hearing it now. Um, and, and this idea is, is really the ultimate arsenal it's the ultimate weapon in the arsenal of any parent in their negotiation with their small terrorists <laughs> at dinner time. Just, you, you have to finish eating your food if you want dessert. Uh, in my house, we call it a happy plate. Not because the kids are very happy about it, but because mom and dad are happy about it. Um, but we call it a happy plate. Gunner came up to me, my son Gunner, who turns five today, it's his birthday, he's excited about it. He's been counting down for a week. Um, so he woke up this morning and said, Daddy, it's my birthday. Uh, yes, it is, man. Anyway, he came up to me this last week and he, I mean, he was like in full, I mean, he was, he was in character. Daddy, my belly is just so full. I cannot eat one more bite, Daddy. It's just so full. I just cannot do it. And he had uh, some kind of soup, something that we had had. And, uh, and I said, oh, man, I'm so sorry, bud. Did you, eat, did you eat some? Yeah, Daddy, I ate so much. So much, Daddy. I ate so much. He handed me his spoon with his bowl, and the spoon wasn't even wet. <laughs> I said, bud, you're going to have to eat your dinner. But, Daddy, my belly, it's just so full. I can't eat anything else. I said, do you want some ice cream? Yes, 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 I want ice cream, Daddy. But I thought you said your belly was full. It is full, Daddy, but I want some ice cream. And that's a familiar conversation with any parent of any young kids you're trying to get them to eat. And, and, and so this idea that the best is yet, yet to come, hold on to your fork because the best is yet to come is, is something that, um, 
you know, we're familiar with it in the context of food, but what I hope to do starting today and for the next several weeks is I want to help to establish this context, not just in food, but in faith. And what I want to help you see today is that, that, that there are truths that God gives us in his word. For some of us, these are going to be familiar truths, but sometimes we forget about the impact of them in our lives today. Um, and what I want to do today and for the next few weeks is begin to, to unpack some truths from God's word. And I want to try to connect the dots of these ancient truths and what they mean for us today and what they mean for us in the context of everything that we've been going through and the things that we're facing. And today what I want to do is I want to talk to us um, about uh, th th this idea of the, uh, not just the idea, but the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I already talked about this before. Our theme for the year is to come back, our verse for the year. My hope for you as a part of our church is that you would memorize this verse and that you would begin to ask yourself, what does it look like for me to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? And what I'm doing in this series is I'm teaching you some, some truths that enable you to be able to look to Jesus the author and the finisher of our faith so that it will build some faith and create a foundation that you can stand on and the foundation that you can, you can launch off into the world and into life with. And I want to talk to us today about the resurrection of Jesus. And I believe, this is, this is me, I believe that the resurrection of Jesus is the most historically proven event in the history of the world. You can disagree with me with that, and I'm not going to be mad at you. Contrary to what we see on social media, I'm not going to cancel you if you disagree with me on that, but that's just my belief. Um, but what I hope to do today is I hope to look at the resurrection of Jesus in a context that, that is a little bit different. Oftentimes when we talk about these, these truths in God's word, we have this tendency because we're here and not when it happened. Um, we we kind of hover above the text as we read these things. And what I hope to do today is I hope to take us from the position of hovering above the text and reading the text and wondering about the text. And what I hope to do today um, under, under the, the influence of the spirit today and that the spirit of God would help you today to not just hover above the text, but give you a perspective as if you were embedded in the text that you would experience this from the first person perspective. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you, if you would just, you know, just, just, you know, satisfy me just for a moment, just close your eyes for a second. If you're watching online, go ahead, close your eyes. And I want to set the scene for you. And I want you to think for a moment that you're in first century Israel. And you look down at what you're wearing and you are rocking the most modern fashion of basic bland colors of cotton dress. Men, it is the most manly dress that a man dress could ever be. You've got leather strapped sandals on your feet and you're on your way from your simple home made of wood and mud and, and you're on your way to go meet with Jesus and his followers. You call yourselves the disciples. And on your way there, you you walk out into the hot sun and, and you feel the breeze from the, uh, the, the Sea of Galilee blowing and it, and it blows your, your long hair off your shoulders and, and, and you, you hear the sound of animals and uh, of donkeys and goats uh, around you and you hear, the, you hear the sound of people talking as the, as the fishermen have come in from their morning catch and they're at the market and they're, 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 they're bartering uh, with, with, with customers. And you're on your way to a pre-described place that Jesus has told you to meet. You can feel the dirt between your toes, which is one of the best feelings in the world when you're walking on a dirt road. 
You can smell not only the fresh water coming off the Sea of Galilee, but you smell many other smells that are associated with live animals all around you, and it's glorious. Open your eyes for me. Are you there? Can you see it? You get to the place and you see the other disciples there. You come across Peter. Peter's the, the one who's loud and brash and he always, he, he, he's, he's just so egotistical and always has to be the first one to speak. Always thinks he's the smartest person in the room. And then usually when he opens his mouth, he proves to everybody that he's not. You see Luke, he's there. He's, he's a physician. He's, he's, he's an interesting one. He, he's always kind of observing things and taking notes. And there's Matthew, he's a tax collector and, and he doesn't usually say a lot. He's usually the one carrying the money and counting things because he's, he's familiar with that. And, and then there's the one who's, he's a little awkward. He's a little odd. Um, he, he, sometimes you wonder if he's really with the rest of you. His name is Judas. And, but Jesus has said he wanted him to be a part of the group. And so, so you're there with the rest of the group. And, and what you've seen over these last few days has been kind of interesting because you, you decided to follow Jesus and because you heard John the Baptist one day saying that, that, that behold, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you heard that and you're like, well, who is that? And you, you looked and there's Jesus and John the Baptist pointing to Jesus. And so you begin to follow Jesus. And, and what you know is, is that your, 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 your Hebrew scriptures have promised of a king and a Messiah that was gonna come. And, and John the Baptist seems to believe that this Jesus from Nazareth is, is the one. And so you, you begin to follow him and you, you hang out with him and you listen to his teachings. And, and eventually you begin to see some pretty strange things that start happening where he does things that don't really make sense, things that nobody else has really ever done. Matter of fact, in just the last couple of days as you have met up with Jesus and followed Jesus with the rest of the group, you've seen some crazy things. You saw Jesus walking on water in the midst of a storm. And, and not only that, Peter, the dumb one, the loud one, he got up and, and walked on water too. You saw Jesus on a hillside and, 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 and a whole bunch of people showed up. By your count, there was about 5,000 men and then they had their wives and their kids with them as well. And so, so there's about 10,000 people there and Jesus told you and the rest of the followers to go feed everybody. And you guys were like, excuse me? Uber Eats hadn't, hadn't been invented yet. Jesus says, well, well, just go find something. And you found a little boy with a, with a brown paper bag lunch with five loaves of fish or five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus says, this will do. And you're going, for you? <laughs> and to your amazement, Jesus took the, the bread and the fish and, and blessed it, prayed for God to bless it, and then handed it out to you guys. And he said, now y'all go hand it out. And all you know is that every time you put your hand in the basket, there was something still there. There's a man named Jairus who, who came up to Jesus screaming, Jesus, 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 I need you to help my daughter. My daughter is sick and she's going to die. While Jairus is still talking to Jesus and having dialogue, you see somebody come up and, and whisper something to Jairus and saying, your daughter has died. Jesus said some weird stuff and all of a sudden, all you know is that Jesus told the man to go back home because his daughter is alive again. 
You see, these are things that don't make sense, but all along the way you're thinking, okay, well, if he is the Messiah, then, then he, he, was, he was prophesied, it was prophesied that he was going to do miracles and things that didn't make sense. And so, so you've been watching these things happen, and then all of a sudden, as you've gathered together, Jesus comes to you and the disciples, and we're in Luke chapter 9 today, if you want to open there. We're in Luke chapter 9, and Jesus, Jesus comes, and, and you've been witnessing this, and you've been observing this, and in the back of your mind you're thinking, man... He must be the one. And Jesus comes up to you on this day in verse, Luke chapter 9 and verse 18. And it says this, and it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. So, sorry, Jesus didn't come to you, you went to him. My bad. Um, and, 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 and you guys joined him and, and, you be, and he asked you saying this, who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus wants to know what everybody else thinks of him. Seems like a reasonable response. Most humans are interested at some level to know what people think of them. So you begin to look around yourselves and, and, and you guys just kind of all answered, shouting out different things. And, and somebody said John the Baptist and someone else said, uh, but some say Elijah and, and others say that, that one of the old prophets has risen again. You don't really know exactly how to explain it, um, but that's what the rest, that's what the crowd is saying. That's what the people are saying about Jesus. Jesus says, that's great. But then he said, but who, who do you say that I am? You see, now Jesus is shifting his focus. That's great what the crowd says, but I want to know after walking with me and seeing these things, I want to know who do you say that I am? And you, you know, you guys are all kind of looking around amongst each other and you know, you guys are thinking like, well, I mean, the crowd seem to kind of have it right. We don't exactly know who we are and Nobody really wants to say the wrong thing. It's like, it's like being in class and the teacher asks for an answer, but nobody wants to say the wrong answer. But thankfully, good old Pete's here. He's the guy in the group that can't stand awkward silence. And oftentimes, he'll just open up and say whatever ridiculous thing comes to his mind just so that the awkward silence goes away. Do you know anybody like that? Peter says, The Christ of God. Now what you would know is that when Peter says the Christ, that it's, this isn't, he's not referring to Jesus' new last name. He's referring to a title. The Christ would refer to the Messiah and the King and the prophesied one who would come and lead Israel and, and, and not just anyone, but the Christ of God. Meaning, you are the one whom, whom the God that we worship has sent to us to be our champion, to be our king, to be our deliverer, our, our rescuer, our savior. In another account, Jesus responds to Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon. Simon uh, was Peter's original name until Jesus changed it. He says, blessed are you, Simon, because no one has revealed this to you except for God himself. The rest of the crowd's going, we knew it. We knew it. We, we knew that he was the one, but now, based on what Peter said and how Jesus has responded, he's just confirmed it. You are the king. Oh, my goodness. And everyone's excited about it, and you and everyone else is thinking, oh, my goodness, this is the, I mean, 
This is what we, our people have been waiting for for hundreds of years. It's like being let in on the inside secret of the most, the, the, the most inside joke, the, the best inside secret information that anybody could ever have. Oh, I'm, I'm a, I can't wait. I can't wait to go tell people that people are, oh my goodness, I can't wait to tell. And Jesus follows it by saying this. Verse 21, and he strictly warned them and commanded them and said, tell nobody. Saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Wait, what? (laughs) Sorry, what I think I heard you say was um, that you're going to die. So just let me get this straight. We're all wondering who you are. We've seen you do all of these miracles, Jesus. And, and you ask us who we think that you are. And, you know, Peter answered it. We all kind of agree with him that you are the Christ of God. And you confirmed it. And we're excited. We're elated. We, we know what this means, that you are the fulfillment of prophecies of old. But hold on a second. Now you're telling us that you're going to die? No, 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 that's not how this works. We just found out that you are the king that was promised to us. There's no chance we're gonna let you die. There's no chance we're gonna allow that to happen to you, Jesus, because, because we have been in misery. We have been in suffering. We have been in waiting for so long. And so, no, 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 that doesn't work for us. We have put our heads together and have decided no. Our king is not going to show up, pop in and say hello, and then die. That's not how this is going to work. In another account in Matthew chapter 16, Peter took so much exception, so much issue to this, Peter grabs Jesus and he pulls him off to the side. Y'all can still hear what Peter and Jesus are saying. And Peter says this in verse 22, Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. And he said, far be it from you, Lord, this ain't happening. Just my translation. This ain't happening on our watch. Far be it from you. You shut your mouth talking like that, Jesus, because we just found out, and me and the boys, listen, we'll go get our fishing poles, and we'll go get our our, our knives, and and, and you are the king, and we will fight for you. Ain't nobody going to come in and take our king Thank you very much. And you look at Jesus to see how Jesus is going to respond. I mean, after all, Jesus just said, I am the Christ. And now good old Pete is telling him to shut his mouth. It's like if you are a sibling and you're watching your older sibling for the first time open their mouth and run it to mom and dad. And you're just going, oh. I don't know if I need to go hide or go get popcorn. One way or the other, something's going down right now. And Jesus, with the look of a, of a parent who is reestablishing their authority, with a child who has decided that their authority meant nothing, grabs Peter's hands off of his shoulders, and he says this, Verse 22 in Matthew 16, he said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. 
For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Now, if you're there, you're part of your thinking, that's right, Peter, you need to learn to shut your trap, dude. But Jesus just looked at Peter and called him Satan. What Jesus is doing, he's saying, listen, you don't understand what's happening. You see, from a human standpoint, for all of us, as we're, as we're in this space, as we're watching this unfold, here's what we know. We know that death has never been defeated. Sure, Jairus' daughter just, just got some new, you know, got brought back to life, but eventually she's going to die again. But when kings go to the grave, they don't come back. And the best that you can have to hope for is that his oldest son, who will assume the role of the next king, will be just as good as the last king. But Jesus doesn't have any sons. And so from a humanistic standpoint, we're looking at this going, uh-uh, no. No, that's not how it's going to work. And Jesus is speaking directly to Peter. He's looking at Peter, but he's speaking to Satan. He's saying, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you don't understand what I'm doing. This event rattles around in the back of your mind for the next couple of years as you follow Jesus. You see some more miracles. You see some crazy things. You saw Jesus bring this dude named Lazarus who had been dead for a little while and he was wrapped up in the mummy clothes. And, and Jesus then called him, you know, he shows up and says, Lazarus, come, come out of the grave. And dude comes out with morning breath you can't even imagine. But he's alive. And events lead up to preparation for Passover, which is an incredibly significant time for you as a, as a Jewish person, as a time of worship, where everyone comes back into Israel and, and Jesus, Jesus begins to gather you up and, and leads you and the rest of the disciples towards Jerusalem. And what has now become Holy Week and the build up and lead to what we know now is Easter for you as a Jew in the first century, you would just know it as Passover week, a significant time of worship and sacrifice where all Jewish people would come back to Jerusalem as a part of their annual pilgrimage, where they would make a sacrifice in the temple. And Sunday, Jesus tells you and a few others to go to a very specific house and get a donkey for him. Seems weird to you because you don't remember Jesus going and making any arrangements. But lo and behold, you get there and there's a donkey and you bring it to Jesus and Jesus, Jesus gets on the donkey and he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and as he does, all of these people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're laying palm branches down on the road that the, the, the donkey is walking on. And in your mind, you're looking at this going, oh, that's a check in the box. When I think about what I want from my king, when I think about what I expect from my king, absolutely, I expect him to ride on the back of an animal and people to shout and worship and praise him and to lay things down for him to go come into the city. That checks the box of what I would hope and expect for my king to experience. The Pharisees are also there. 
as the people are shouting praises, the Pharisees are there. They're the religious leaders. You don't really like them very much because they always seem like they have, they're, they're too good for you, even though that their job is to be to stand in the gap between God and you. But it seems to be that all they seem to care about is using the rules and the laws uh, in such a way that benefit them and not you. Let me flash forward to modern day. Does that sound familiar at all to our current situation? Let me go back to first century Jerusalem and not 21st century America for a second. The Pharisees, they don't like, they haven't liked Jesus from the beginning. They, they haven't cared for him. They don't like for what he stands for because what he, what he speaks to and what he talks to is something that upsets the power and the authority and the arrangement that they have made, the Pharisees that is, with the Romans. The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, you need to tell these people to calm down. They worship a little too rowdy in that church. Jesus says, I ain't going to do it. Sometimes when I think about Jesus, I think about him talking in an Arkansas accent. I ain't going to do it. I believe when we get to heaven, the tongue of heaven will be with a southern drawl. Again, you don't know that it's not, so... Tuesday comes, and on Tuesday, Jesus invites you to go with him up to the Mount of Olives. Jesus begins teaching there, and, and the Pharisees show up. And the Pharisees begin to, 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 to speak some strong things to Jesus and accuse him of some things. And Jesus, you can't believe what comes out of Jesus' mouth. As you are listening, he turns to the Pharisees in front of a group of people, and he points his finger at them. He says, you Pharisees, you are hypocrites. You are like a dirty dish. You wash the outside of the dish, but the inside is dirty. You are like whitewashed tombs where the tomb is beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You Pharisees are hypocrites. You're like a brood of vipers. Here's what you do. You go and make a convert and get them to follow you, and you make them twice the sons of hell as you are. And that's what everybody, that's what the Pharisees did. They didn't like it very much. They were embarrassed. They were angry. And they say, that's it. Something's got to be done about this Jesus. As one of the followers of Jesus, you're going, that checks the box. Because these Pharisees don't have our interest. And the king that I have been hoping for would care about my interests, would care about me, would be concerned about the things that bother me. The people that are there are looking around and they're, uh, they're astonished and they're amazed at what they've seen and they can't believe what they're hearing. And, and so, so uh, the Pharisees, they go away and they, they, they begin hatching a plan. The next day is Tuesday. Tuesday, you go with Jesus into the temple. For a second, you're not sure if Jesus is doing something really awesome or if Jesus has just lost his ever-loving mind because he, he sees what's happening in the temple as people have come into the temple and they've used it as a place of bartering and, and economy and, and the trading and selling of goods, which was never what the temple was supposed to be. It's supposed to be a place of prayer. And Jesus comes into the temple and he is so angry. He is so enraged. He begins to flip tables over and he grabs a whip and he starts cracking the whip at people and chases them out of the 
the temple and he rebukes them and speaks ill of them saying, you have turned my father's house, a house of prayer into something that is your own gain and I won't have it. The people come running out of the temple like crazy. You're not gonna believe this. Jesus, he's unhinged. He's crazy. He, he's run out. He, he's gone mad. The Pharisees watch all of this and they're going, something has to be done about this Jesus. But you and your followers are going, that checks the box of what I would expect from my king because I've been feeling for a long time that things have been not right here. The next day is Wednesday. The Bible doesn't tell us what you and Jesus did on Wednesday. But we do know that somewhere around about this time, the Pharisees go from hatching a plan to enacting a plan. And they've been able to get one of your own, Judas, to agree for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. 30 pieces of silver is nothing to the Pharisees, but for a peasant like Judas and the rest of you, well, that's something. Thursday comes and Jesus tells you to go prepare a place uh, in, the, in the upstairs of a house that he has told you to go. And so you go and you begin to prepare the place and, 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 and the table is set and everything is ready for the Passover meal. And, and there's so many things. This is so rich in, in tradition and so rich in, in Hebrew law and, and fulfillment of scripture and truth of, of what this is supposed to be, symbolizing when God um, allowed Israel to get passed over from the angel of death by the blood of the lamb that was, that was shed and, and put on the doorposts of the house of, of your ancestors and you continue to have this as a part of your religious expression, as a part of your annual worship to God. It's evening time on Thursday and, and, and everybody is there and the disciples are there and Jesus shows up and, and much to your embarrassment and to your shame and everybody else's, Jesus does the unthinkable. He takes his outer garment off and he goes and he, he wraps a towel around his waist and gets a, a wash basin and he begins to do what was held for the lowest of the servants of the house. He begins to wash people's feet, the dirt and the dung and the nasty. Good old Pete said, nah, no, Jesus, get on your feet. You ain't washing my feet. Jesus says, Peter, if you won't let me wash your feet, then you have nothing to do with me. Good thing about Peter is he's usually quick to own his mistakes. Well, <laughs> well then go ahead and wash all of me. And Jesus goes, calm down, cowboy. <laughs> Keep your clothes on. I'm just washing your feet. Jesus takes the bread and breaks it and he takes the cup and he passes it around and uses language about a new covenant that doesn't fully make sense to you. And again, Jesus says that he's gonna die, but he's gonna be resurrected on the third day. Again, doesn't make sense to you because what you've seen and what you've witnessed and what you've observed is what you would have expected of a king. Time comes and Jesus says somebody here is going to betray us and all of a sudden Judas gets up and leaves. Somehow none of y'all think that's weird. But Judas gets up and leaves and when it's over everybody goes to their home but, but as you're leaving with the rest of the disciples Jesus says hey Peter, James and John can y'all hold on for a second. Everybody else goes home and they go to their place wherever they're resting wherever the arrangements they've made to sleep and, and Jesus takes Peter, James and John to the garden of Gethsemane and he says, hey listen, I need y'all boys to pray here for a minute. I'm gonna go pray and, and Jesus goes and prays and, and, and as he's praying, the Pharisees 
are starting to get a little giddy because they know that something's about to happen. As Jesus prays, Peter, James, and John are falling asleep, and Jesus comes, what's the matter with you? Can't you stay up and pray with me? And they fall back asleep again. And as Jesus prays, Judas is, is connecting with a, a small group of Roman soldiers to meet up with him. And as Jesus prays, Father, if let your will be done. If it's, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, let your will be done. And as Jesus finishes praying, Peter, James, and John are awakened by the sound of feet and the, and the sight of a uh, of a bright light as people are coming with torches and as Jesus finishes praying, Judas comes up and he, he greets Jesus and Jesus looks at him and says, Judas, do what you need to do. And he kisses Jesus' face and the Roman guards arrest him and as they do, Peter or James and John, they go running, they don't know what to do. Peter follows from a distance and three different times on Thursday night, Peter's given the opportunity as he's confronted by three different people to identify himself as one of the followers of Jesus. And three different times, Peter says, no, I don't know what you're talking about. He starts cussing and swearing. And Friday comes. You see, on Friday, Jesus is standing arrested and accused. His face has been punched. He's been spit upon. His beard has been pulled out of his faith. On Friday, the Pharisees think that the, 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 the plan is in motion now. It's just a matter of time now until this Jesus is dealt with. On Friday, Pontius Pilate is looking for every reason, the Roman governor, to, to not kill this man. On Friday, the crowds are beginning to gather. Word is beginning to spread. On Friday, things don't look good, but what nobody else seems to know but Jesus is that some Sunday's coming. Jesus goes from just being accused to now standing in front of Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate is, is asking, what should I do with this man? You call him the king of the Jews. And the Pharisees go, he's not our king. Well, what should I do with him? Pontius Pilate says. And the Pharisees in the crowd in unison start shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. On Friday, Pontius Pilate washes his hands and he says, I'm done with this. On Friday, the Roman guards take Jesus and place a wooden beam upon his back. On Friday, Jesus begins walking out of the city. On Friday, the disciples are still in hiding. On Friday, the devil and the demons are smiling. Things don't look good on Friday, but what nobody seems to know but Jesus is that Sunday's coming. On Friday, Jesus is nailed to a cross and hung suspended in the air between two thieves. On Friday, there's two thieves. One curses him and the other praises him. On Friday, the Roman guards are, are, are gambling for his clothes. On Friday, Mary, his mother, is crying and wailing in misery as what she's experiencing. On Friday, John has showed back up and, on, and Jesus gives him instruction, hey, you need to take care of Mary. On Friday, the Pharisees are going, it's just a matter of time now it's almost done. It's almost over. On Friday, the demons and the devil are dancing. And on Friday, Jesus cries out with a loud shout, it is finished. You see, it doesn't look good on Friday, but what nobody knows except Jesus is that Sunday's coming. On Friday, they take his body off the cross and they bury him in Joseph's tomb. 
On Friday, Pontius Pilate thinks that he has escaped disaster and that uh, 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 um, uh, insurrection has been avoided. On Friday, the Pharisees think, whoo, it's done. On Friday, the devils and the demons are singing. But what nobody knows but Jesus is that Sunday's coming. On Saturday, the disciples and you are scared. You're afraid, you're confused. On Friday, Mary Jesus' mother is grieving the way that any mother would grieve after she's watched her son be murdered. On Friday, Pontius Pilate has moved on because to Pontius Pilate, this, this Jew named Jesus means nothing to him. On Friday, the Pharisees have moved forward with their regular business. On Friday, or Saturday, Jesus lays dead in a grave. And on Saturday, the devil is rejoicing and darkness is singing their victory chant. And all hope seems to be lost on Saturday. But Sunday's coming. And on Sunday, the devil stopped laughing and darkness stopped dancing. All because Jesus started breathing. On Sunday, everything changed. On Sunday, Pontius Pilate isn't even aware of what's happened, but forevermore, time will be adjusted. Nobody could have known on this Sunday, but on this moment, everything has changed. You see, they couldn't, you couldn't see it in the moment. As you were following Jesus and watching him perform miracles and hear him teach, you, you couldn't understand what Jesus said to you on that day when he said, don't tell anybody about this because the Son of Man is going to suffer many things at the hands of, of people and he's going to be killed and he's going to come back on the third day. You couldn't understand it then. You couldn't understand it any other than the five times where he told you it was going to happen. You couldn't see it when he resurrected Jairus' daughter, when he brought Lazarus back from the grave. But what Jesus was doing all along was leaving breadcrumbs to help you see, yeah, I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna come back. To put it in language that we're using today, what Jesus had been telling you all along was hold on to your fork. Things are gonna seem miserable on Friday. Things are gonna feel lonely and isolating on Saturday. But what you have to understand is that I know that Sunday is coming. And I'm just speaking this over somebody today. I don't know what the last 6, 12, 18, 24 months has been for you. Maybe it's been Friday. Maybe it's been Saturday. But I'm telling you on the authority of God's word that Jesus Christ himself knows that Sunday's coming. He's telling you, hold on to your fork because the best is yet to come. In the same way that parents will negotiate with their kids, listen, just eat this. You have to have this. It's good for you. You need it to nourish you. It's not what you want, but it's what you need. And if you will endure what you need and trust me, then I will make sure that, that dessert is coming. 
And in the same kind of way in faith, what I believe that God has sent me to tell us today and throughout this series is, is that there are things that we as a people, we as the followers of Jesus, we as humans are having to go through in this season, but God is telling us that it's not the end of the story. And we know that it's not the end of the story because Jesus has told us that he is the comeback kid. He made it true. He was declaring it as he was doing all of these things leading up to his death and he defined it and he finished it when he came back from the grave. What does that mean for us today? What well, means a whole heck of a lot for us today? It means everything for us today. I believe the Apostle Paul captured it perfectly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he said, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The strength of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. What this means for us today is that whatever it is that's going on around us, that our faith in Jesus and his resurrection means that, that, that we can have a hope that transcends the grave. We have the same understanding that the disciples would have had back then, that nobody comes back from the grave. One thing that we can all agree on is that death always wins until it didn't. The only way that Jesus could bring that type of hope, only way Jesus could bring that type of peace, the only way Jesus can bring that type of, of, of power available to our lives to embolden our faith to look at anything that the world would throw at us was that he had to go to the grave. The grave that had never been defeated and give the grave and give death the knockout punch. Can I just tell you that this is the truth that all of our faith anchors on. It's the moment in history where the God-man Jesus went to the grave and came back. Can I just take a moment and peel into current events for a second? I believe God's calling me today as your pastor to get in somebody's Kool-Aid today that this is the truth that should unite his people. We've seen so many things happen over the last year. We've seen violence, we've seen riots, we've seen peaceful protests, we've heard voices be raised in pain and agony, in frustration, in disenfranchisement of what's going on in our nation and in our country. And every single time it has, everyone has an opinion about it. What grieves me and what I believe grieves the Lord 
is that we as the followers of Jesus have allowed all of our pet projects and all of our our other ideas and all of our other agendas and all of our other initiatives and all of our other causes and all of our political perspectives to come in and to sit in the seat of the primary cause of our life, the thing that we're gonna trumpet, the thing that we're gonna advocate for, the thing that we're gonna argue about, the thing that we're gonna let everybody know where I stand. And as it has happened, the church of Jesus Christ has become divided and it has become anemic and it has become ineffective because we have allowed the issues of our world to supersede the issue, which is God gave his son to die for humanity so that the hope of the, that we can have in the midst of all of this pain and all of this devastation and all of this destruction would never be found on this side of heaven. And for whatever you think my opinion matters, I'm just telling you as your pastor, for the love of everything that is holy, can we get back to the business that our king has left us here to do? Which is to tell the world about the love and the hope and the power that comes from the one who defeated the grave. Listen, the last time that I remember reading scripture, Jesus did not pray when he was teaching us how to pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or, or he, he didn't say, let your will be done here as I want it to be. You know what's embedded in that truth in the Lord's prayer? is that there is an assumption that as long as there is distance between heaven and earth, there's gonna be discrepancy between what happens on heaven and earth. And Jesus prayed, God, let your will be done here as it is there. And then he sent us to be about the business. Listen, I'm not trying to tell you you can't have passion. I'm not trying to tell you you can't advocate for things. I'm not telling you you can't be upset about something that's going on in our nation. I'm not telling you that you can't be uh, excited or angry about the election or, or happy or sad about what happened this week or, 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 or upset or disappointed by the things that have happened over the course of the year. I'm not telling you you can't feel any of those things. I'm just begging and pleading with you to remember that what Jesus prayed for us before he left earth was that we would be a united, church and when we begin to allow these other things that are important to become the thing that you are known for as a follower of Jesus you cross the line More than anything, God wants his people to be known by how they love him and how they love everyone else. That message can't get across when we're canceling people. That message can't get across when you're constantly berating people for thinking differently than you. Can I tell you, when you get to heaven, God's not gonna ask you 
How'd you feel when XYZ happened on that day? He's going to ask you, what did you do with my son? He's going to ask you, how did you live in response to his brutal murder that I allowed to happen so that you can stand in my presence? He's going to ask you, who is here because of your witness and your testimony of what my son did for you? Can I just tell you, I know some of y'all are mad that I'm not more actively politically engaged and beating the, the table of some political agenda, and some of y'all are mad that I talk about politics at all, which by the way, usually tells me I'm probably right where I need to be when I get it from both sides. I've got opinions, I've got thoughts, I've got some I'm really passionate about. But God has not permitted me or you to be more passionate about any other cause than the cause of Jesus Christ and how he went to the cross to pay for the sins of not just humanity, but for Republicans and for Democrats. Hey, let me put this in your, in your, in your Kool-Aid for a second. Jesus went to the cross for Antifa and Black Lives Matter and QAnon as well. And when he left, he sent us to go demonstrate his love to all of them. Oh, grave, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? For the strength of sin is in, the is in the law, and the sting of death is in sin. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord.